All right, friends. Good morning. Let's uh, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we will continue our journey here through the letter. <clears throat> One of the things that I love about 2 Corinthians is it really gives us a demonstration inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by Paul, uh, of Paul's humanity. And I don't know, I just find it particularly encouraging uh, that these guys were human. Uh, I think it looks easy to kind of glance back and just think, well, it was Paul. Pretty sure he levitated to church, and I'm pretty sure he you know, never struggled with anything, and I'm pretty sure he had like, you know, a name tag, and every, you know, whatever. But to realize that these guys were, they were like us, and they dealt with emotion, they dealt with difficulty, they dealt with doubt, they dealt with wondering if they did the right thing. You know, these people of old, these great cloud of witnesses, if you will, that encourage us as we chase Christ, uh, that they were like us. Um, not to minimize Paul or anything, I'm not trying to do that at all, uh, but just in this letter, you really begin to see his humanity and his care for people. We're going to pick up this morning, and uh, we have a few thoughts, uh, but we'll start off in chapter 2, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and uh, verse 12. He says, And now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind, because it did not I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. So we'll stop there for a second. This is kind of an interesting little portion of Scripture. If you don't mind, just for continuity's sake, if you flip over to chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and in verse 5 he says, chapter 7 and verse 5, For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were, here, uh, we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside and fears within, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by, this, uh, by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my, job was greater, see, my joy was greater than ever. So two things about that. Number one, Paul's going to make a five-chapter diversion here. So... He, if you notice in chapter, verse 14, he says, so we went to Macedonia. In chapter 7, verse 5, he says, so we got to Macedonia. <laughs> so everything from, from chapter 2, verse 15, until chapter 7, verse 5, is a side point. And you have to love that about Paul, right? He's kind of the king of the comment, uh, uh, the comma. He's the, the king of the run-on sentence. He has some sentences in Greek and Ephesians that are just massive. And so he's making a side point here. And the whole side point, they're some of my favorite chapters in the scripture. But the whole side point he's going to talk about is God's faithfulness in ministry. So he starts the section by saying, we're going to Macedonia. We're going to Troas, excuse me. Then we end up leaving to go to Macedonia, and then he's going to talk all about this amazing uh, grace of God, the Spirit of God. He's going to talk about the new covenant ministry, how, how it was the, the covenant of condemnation to the new covenant that's not of the letter but of the Spirit. He's going to talk about uh, the uh, power of Christ, the knowledge of knowing Christ, uh, and how that shines out from us. It's just this incredible side point that he's going to make. 
So we're just going to kind of begin uh, this morning by just taking this little piece here. We'll, we'll do a little bit more and talk about Paul as a human being. Is it noteworthy that in chapter 5 he was encouraged about how the Corinthians felt about him? And this is part of the humanity I think we see in Paul. Because I think a lot of times, especially in ministry, we're, we're, we kind of have this duality. Maybe just life, maybe ministry is just, you don't have to go there. But we're kind of, uh, we're, we're raised to basically be like, don't ever care what anybody thinks about you. And it's kind of this like cosmic lie, right? Because you spend your whole life caring what people think about you. We try to pretend like we don't. Right. But but, you know, we choose the clothes that we do. We choose, you know, sometimes the music we do. Uh, so many choices that we make are because we have this deep seated need for inclusion. Right. This deep, which is one of the reasons I think the gospel is so incredible, is that it's really the answer to the deepest cry of our soul. And it's to be fully accepted by the, the person with the most authority in the universe ever and to be accepted not upon my own merits, but upon the merit of Christ, right, at Calvary. And it's one of the, one of the things that makes the gospel such a, a tremendous, to make, to make salvation, a relationship with God, such a, a tremendous comfort to us because we finally have the acceptance that we've always been looking for. But Paul, in the ministry, one of the things that he often talks about, later on in a few chapters, he's going to say, when I sent that letter, I cried, I wept, because I knew it would hurt you. And then part of the reason he gives for his encouragement and, and when, when Titus, they finally meet Titus, he says, he told me how much you guys long for me. Now, we've already read in 1 Corinthians, we did it you know, a few months ago, and now in 2 Corinthians, he's battling with people in Corinth. There's a whole subsect of people in Corinth that don't like him. They insult him. They say, he writes really powerful letters, but he is weak when he comes to speak. They assault his personality, his person, his persona among them. And so for him to hear from Titus, like, that you, that there's realistically the church is responding to his letters and there's a care for him, it encourages him. So we, it, in that kind of vein of just seeing Paul as a person, he says, and this is, I think, a little bit profound. In verse 12, he says, When I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me. So he makes this statement. I went to Troas, and he's traveling with people, but he says, we went there. It's kind of far in the north. He says, we went there. And he goes, and when we got there, there was an open door for the gospel. Now, we know that doesn't mean everything was easy. Remember a couple, well, probably a couple months ago now, we talked about when he says that there's a wide open door. He was speaking of Ephesus, if I remember correctly, but there were many adversaries. So he says there's a wide open door, but we have a ton of adversaries, and, and he's referring to the riot and all these different things. So Paul's definition of an open door for ministry was not that it was easy. It was that people were receiving the gospel. Does that make sense? So when we say, uh, typically I think, or I can't speak for you, but oftentimes when we say, oh, there's an open door, what we're saying is, oh, it's just so easy. Just, I got to go do whatever I want, and I ministered. It was an open door. That's not his definition. His definition is that people were hearing the gospel, and they were receiving it. So he says in Troas, he says, look, he goes, we got there, and there was an open door for the gospel, meaning effective ministry was happening. Him and his broskies, they're preaching the gospel. They're discipling people. They're helping people in Troas. But he makes a statement here, and he says, but I found no peace. He says, I still had no peace of mind. And the Greek word there, anesis or anesis, is the idea of, of um, uh, relief in spirit, that his spirit had no relief. So he left trust. He left a place with an open door for the gospel because his spirit 
did not have relief because he was concerned about Titus. So what was Titus doing? Well, we know from Acts and other places that evidently, if we're correct in, in, how, in the timelines, Titus was leaving Corinth, and he was supposed to meet Paul in Troas because he was bringing a sum of money that was a gift that was collected in, in Corinth to help with God's work kind of around, right? So Paul's concern probably isn't the money as much as what happened to Titus. Was he robbed? Was he left for dead by bandits? Why didn't he show up in Troas where he was supposed to show up? So he has this wide open door for the gospel. He's concerned, though, for Titus. And so he comes to a point, he says, I had no peace there was, uh, of mind. And, and so he goes, I left. And I just want to talk about that for a second, a couple points about that. Number one, it's important to understand that there will always be open doors for ministry. Ministry never ends. Have you ever met anybody who said, well, I was ministering, and then all of a sudden, all the needs went away? Nobody had any needs anymore. Everybody was saved. Everybody was walking with Jesus. There were no problems. There was no drama. It was just, so I stopped ministering. No, it has never happened. That's not a complaint. I'm just saying, that, you know, here I just say, if, if there's no drama, like you're not actually having church. I mean, this, because broken people aren't being fixed, right? We welcome drama. Bring the drama. Because if there's drama, that means that people are either acting out or they're trying to figure out how they don't have to act out, right? That's, that's what drama, church drama is. And it's an opportunity to be a fix, to be a help to that. So drama is great. We, we, don't, we shouldn't be afraid of it. We shouldn't be concerned about conflict or any of those things. But the point is this. There's never an end to ministry. And yet Paul, with this open door, decides, I'm going to leave this behind. Just process that for a second. People are getting saved in Troas. This, there's this, I'm not going to say revival, because the Bible doesn't say revival, but there's this open door. People are being ministered to, but he has a concern about Titus. And so he leaves. And I think that if, if you're like me, and you can be judgmental, sometimes we can look at people that leave certain ministries or make decisions in ministry, and we go, well, how could you do that? Why would you do that? The gospel's going out. People are getting saved. Why would, you, why would you go leave and find Titus? Titus is a grown man. Either he's dead from bandits or whatever. I mean, just why would you leave the gospel? Why, why would you stop doing this? And, and so the first part of this is when we see other people move from ministries, especially ministries that we're involved in, don't get offended. Don't get offended when people leave ministries that you're involved in, especially if you don't know why. I mean, hopefully you can find out and talk to them and there can be reasonable. But at the end of the day, Troas and the ministry at Troas, it's the Lord's. It's not Paul's ministry. It wasn't whoever was pastoring a church there. It was, it's, it's the Lord's. And so we have to understand as people, if you're a person who wants to be involved in ministry, that people are going to come and go. And sometimes it'll be for good reasons. And this is, I mean, Titus seems like a pretty important guy, right? He's a human being. He's involved in the work. Paul has a personal attachment to him, and he comes to a place where he found no peace. And so he says, I'm going to leave this ministry and go on. So first, we don't get offended. Secondly, you know what? There comes times in our life where we just have to do something else. And, that, and that's okay, right? Just because there's an open door somewhere, it's okay to do something else. In this case, Paul can't find peace in himself. He, he's not content to continue in this place, and he wants to find out what happened to Titus. And so he moves on. So 
how can we, you know, in our own lives, how does this work out? I think first and foremost, when this idea of peace, so the word, typically the word spirit in the Bible, in the New Testament, every time it's used is the word pneuma, right? Pneuma is not here, but we're just going to talk about what spirit means. So we have the Holy Spirit, right? And that is the idea of God's spirit. So pneuma is breath. That's what it means, a breath or a wind. And so when the Bible says the Holy Spirit, holy being sanctified or set aside, breath or wind, the idea is it's an essence, right? And I'm not trying to get metaphysical or weird or anything like that. I'm just saying that God's spirit is who he is. It's his breath, okay? It's obviously a metaphorical uh, definition, because otherwise, how do you define spirit? Well, it's the invisible part that doesn't have any physical essence, but in its essence is the thing, right? That's what spirit is. <laughs> so the Bible says it's like the breath of that thing. So it's God's holy breath, you know, and, and, and that, it's that, that pneuma that seals us, right, till the day that we're told that we're sealed in, in like a signet ring. His spirit is placed like a, a wax seal on us, and, it's, and, and it's, so we're uh, labeled as his. Uh, we're told that we're empowered, energized. Uh, there's a lot of different words for strength in the Greek, and so some of it is like energy, and some of it's might or power, the, the ability to have strength, and that comes through his spirit. We're encouraged by his spirit. It's his pneuma, his breath of love that is ministering in our hearts that helps us to find thankfulness and, and security. So the, the, his pneuma is doing all these things. So you, not only that in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the New Testament, but you have uh, over and over again references like uh, he was downcast in spirit, right? So that's not saying like this separate essence of God. With, no, but, he, but the idea of a person's spirit, their pneuma, is their state or where they're at, right? Because we're dealing in metaphorical definitions from the scripture. So if we say someone's downcast in spirit, what we're saying is their, their essence, their pneuma, who they are, their flow, their breath, they're discouraged, right? So we're not labeling them as something. We're not making something weird up or like they have the spirit of discouragement. We're not doing any of that. We're saying that person is discouraged. So when Paul, when it says here that he had no peace in spirit, that's what the word means. It's, it's a nesis. There's no, no a for none, uh, peace of, of, of essence. He, the, what's being said there is that he himself could not be settled. His spirit was restless. He, he, there wasn't comfort there. There wasn't, he, there wasn't an, an amen in his heart for this. And so he moves on. And he goes and he, and he looks for Titus. Now, it's noteworthy that you can turn to Acts chapter 20 in your spare time, or now if you want, and whatever. Anyway, uh, I've had plenty of people say, oh, man, I was so encouraged today because I was reading on the other side from what you were teaching. Like, cool. <laughs> the, uh, but in Acts chapter 20, um, you know, you have, the, uh, you have where Paul goes back to Troas, and there's this huge ministry that occurs. So he goes back there, and that's where uh, Eutychus Falls down and die. Remember that? Paul teaches. So you guys think you have it bad, but Paul rocks for like four hours, right? And then he's teaching way into the night, and uh, the, the boy gets tired, and he falls down dead, right, from this kind of three-story loft thing. And Paul prays, and this little boy, is, or this young man, I should say, is raised from the dead. And then you have these, these people there that are just hungry for the word. So the door didn't shut, right? God kept the door open. God was still working in trust, and he was able to come back and minister there in, in really great ways. But I think that we need to pay attention 
and, and pray through and consider when there's something in our spirit that is troubled and just saying, I don't, I'm not sure I'm going to stay and do this. I'm not sure this is what I'm supposed to do. There's a Titus that needs help. There's a, there's a person who's important to me in my life, and I'm going to take time off from the masses to go and find, like, how can I help this person? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, God is the God of the individual, right? He's our God. Jesus is our Savior, Right? And, as, and as we labor together for the faith of the gospel as, as co-laborers and as people that are part of the same church or ecclesia, the same called-out gathering of God's people, that's what the word church is. It's got nothing to do with the building. You know, we have our little localized body here, part of the body, however you want to look at it. That's true. But he's not just our God. He's, he's yours as the individual. And so each one of us has and wants to pay attention to not just needs around us because we'll kill ourselves, but we need to pay attention to what God has called us to as individuals. Does that make sense? Now, am I saying that there's never a time to do something just because it needs to get done? No, I'm not. You wouldn't have church if that was the case. If you were like, I'm just waiting on the Lord for a burden to empty the trash. And once he gives me that burden, I'll do it. I'll be obedient. No, that's a joke. You just go, I'm going to go empty the trash because it needs to get done. And it, otherwise, this place will stink. And people will walk in and be like, this is not cool. I'm out, right? So there's just certain things that you just, you, it doesn't necessarily have to do with desire. It has to do with calling and peace, right? What does God call me to do? Now, if there's a full trash, but, you know, some other huge emergency occurs, yeah, you're prioritized, right? So that's all we're saying. Prioritize. What are you, what is the Holy Spirit calling you to do? Is there something in your life right now that you know you need to tend to? It's okay to put things down to tend to things, right? The Lord is not limited by us. Um, so it's a balance, right? We want to be available for ministry. We're called to ministry. We're called to serve. We're called to serve the Lord in, in a, the, our body, in our families, in our jobs, right? So we're not minimizing the call to serve. We're just saying that sometimes it can be an individual or there's something. We just don't have peace, and we need to go tend to that. And we don't have to feel guilty or bad or something like that. Let's flip over really quick to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians. So Paul in Philippians 4, almost, and maybe all of Paul's letters, all have a very similar format. Not so much 2 Corinthians, but most of them have a, eh, even 2 Corinthians to an extent. And the format is generally, hi, I'm Paul. This is what I got going on. This is what God has done for you. This is how you can respond to him. And then this is how you can respond to people around you. That's kind of how he rolls. Like, this is the great thing God has done for us. Here's how we can respond to it. So chapter 4 of Philippians is kind of the, the practical side or the response that he's giving. So he says there in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. So when we're experiencing anxiety and so forth, and we're trying to figure out, is this anxiety I need to respond to? Right? So if I'm in Troas and this incredible ministry is going on, and yet I'm concerned for Titus, his well-being, is he murdered by bandits, is he, you know, whatever, I need to go investigate, whatever it might be. 
I need to pray about that, right? I need to say, like, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm experiencing concern. I know anxiety is like this weird thing where we go, oh, it's a sin, and I get it. I understand, be anxious for nothing. I get that. But also anxiety is just a symptom oftentimes of that I'm thinking about something. I'm concerned about it. I'm working through it. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm not trying to minimize sin. I'm just saying let's evaluate anxiety, why I'm anxious, before I just try to kick the reason out the door. Let me think about it. So if there's something that's making me anxious, I need to establish is it valid or not, right? Is this valid? There are some things that, are, that make me anxious that might be valid, but I can do nothing about, right? I live on a giant earthquake fault. I could die at any moment, right? They say the peninsula will go 50 feet down. So you'll have a few seconds to kiss your kids goodbye and we'll die. So you might have anxious, be anxious about that, right? But there's literally absolutely nothing you can do about it. You could move, but then, you know, they say that Portland's going to be beachfront when that happens. So... I don't want to go to Portland. I don't know if you do or not, but you know. This, but no matter no matter where you go, is it going to be tornadoes? Is it going to be earthquakes? It's going to be crime. Is it going to, you know, so, so there's there certain things that like we cannot do anything about, right? And so if I'm anxious about that, that's something that I there's no solution in the sense of like I'm going to somehow pray the fault back together or something. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to I'm going to you know whatever. That's not real. Right? In fact, we know that in the last days, you know, and this is just a theory, and so don't try to comfort yourself with my weird theories, but in the, in, we know that in the last uh, part of the tribulation, it says that there will be earthquakes like there have never been before. My opinion is that that's what these kind of things are for. The, the fault that's about 100 miles offshore here, my opinion, if, 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 if I perish, I perish, and I'll hug my kids tight and then die, but... If not, I think that that's what it's reserved for. Because when you look at the faults that are around the world, when they go, they're going to be earthquakes as I've never seen before. So that's just my opinion. Uh, probably don't want to be comforted by my opinion. You probably just want to be comforted by the fact that God is God and he's amazing. And regardless of what happens, uh, we'll be okay, even if we drown. So you most likely won't drown, though. Let's be honest. You're going to take one to the head and then, you know, whatever. Anyway. And then you won't care anyway. But anyway, what did you learn in church today? Uh, I have a tremendously weird death coming. That's what I learned. But there's things that we have no control over, right? So if I'm experiencing anxiety about something I have nothing to control over, then this is where I need to come to some places. Now, I actually have used this verse sarcastically many times to prove a point. When, when you walk into a church, or not, not a church like they're all bad or something, but sometimes when you walk in, people that mean well, you'll be like, oh, dude, I'm really struggling, or this is going thing, and the, well, the Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. And you're like, good, because I was anxious, now I'm condemned. Thank you for the ministry, Right? <laughs> I was just worried about stuff, but now that you've brought that into my life, I realize I probably shouldn't be worrying, and I should just be rejoicing, so now I feel convicted instead. So I don't really know what to do with that. But there's, there's a whole point to this. A, there isn't this. This isn't something someone says, I'm bummed out, and you go, well, the Bible says rejoice, so uh, when you're rejoicing, give me a call, and then we'll move forward. No, this is, where, this is for you and I to really consider, in a world that uh, is post-Christian, in a world that thinks that we are terrible people in a world that we have faults that can go at any moment, in a world where crime is rampant, in a world where you know, just a ton of bad things are happening. I am called to take a step back and to cause myself to think about, and, and I say it that way on purpose, sometimes we have to cause ourselves to think about the Lord, don't we? Because there's a million things out there that we can think about. And, and unfortunately, I'm not anti-smartphones, so don't get that vibe from me. 
But unfortunately, we possess these little computers in our hands that, that are very easily can take two hours from our life and fill us, and it's an exchange. We trade that time for anxiety. Because we go, oh my goodness, this is happening in Cleveland. This is happening in India. This is happening all places where we cannot influence at all. Right? So again, I'm not saying don't look at the news. I'm not saying don't have a smart. I'm not saying any of those things. What I'm saying is we have to take steps. We have to take steps to say, no, I'm not going to fill my mind with bad things that are happening all over the world. And, and let me just, can I just say this? That doesn't make you unfaithful. It makes you wise. I do not believe, and this is an opinion, you can throw it away. I do not believe that human beings were designed for smartphones. I don't think they were. I think we were designed to sit on farms, on rocking chairs, and stare at our crops while we read our whatever. That's what I think we were designed for. And we've kind of come to this place in our life where we're constantly bombarded with information and our society is telling us if we're not acting on every single piece of information, we're unfaithful, we're hateful, we're, we're selfish. At no time in history have people acted like we act. Think about that for a second. The Industrial Revolution globally changed how humanity acts. Our, our, our work weeks, our thought processes, they changed everything. So for, for like... 5,800 years, humans that we have history of, humans acted and did certain things. They subsistence farmed, right? If you were really wild, you subsistence farmed and had like a little shop where you sold your leather wares, right? Maybe you started working with metal or something, right? That's how human, now we're in this place where it's just constant information, constant bombardment, constant activity, constant activity. And so we can come to these places where we're just completely overwhelmed. And it's not wrong to just say, no, 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 I'm done. So in that overwhelmed, first and foremost, we're called to rejoice in the Lord. And what that means is, that's not just some mantra, right? Eastern meditation can work to, close, to, to, to clear your mind. I'm not advocating for it. I'm not making a statement on yoga. I'm just saying that Eastern meditation, it, will, it, can, it can empty your mind. Focusing on a mantra Repeating the mantra, clearing your mind, it works. But the problem is, if you clear a sinful mind and you don't fill it with something good, you're still the same person. So what we're doing, we're not, we're not trying to use mantras or something like that, but we do have things that we consider and we intentionally bring them into our mind. So we might take the cell phone and put it away, or maybe you pick it up and you have a Bible program, or you have a devotional. Or you're going to listen to worship music. Or you're going to, but you intentionally, we intentionally make a step to think, I'm going to think about the Lord. He's the God of faults, right? He's the God who raises up leaders and puts them down. He's the God that will be waiting for me when I, when I meet heaven. He's the God who says he provides for me. He's the God who says he fills me with the spirit and strengthens me. So I'm going to take a moment in my day. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. And that's the crazy thing about worship. Worship often begins truly as a sacrifice because we don't want to do it. It's interesting, and I don't know why, but it's fascinating how much we love to worry. 
And, 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 and you, and because we just entertain it and we entertain it. And then we go, oh my goodness, that law is going to pass. Where's 5,000 articles on the internet where I can find the same thing? <laughs> and I'm going to read every one of them. And then I'm going to get on Facebook and say, I've read 5,000 articles that say this law might pass. Instead of going, okay, I don't want that law to pass. I'm going to just give that to the Lord. I'm going to consider where he's at. He's in heaven. Is he worried? Is the father talking to Jesus right now going, oh, no. (laughs) They control the Senate. (laughs) Is that what's going on? Or is he saying, man, I have my people. And and they're going to represent me to this world. I'm not saying don't vote your conscience. I'm saying don't worry. Come to a place where you say, you know know what my joy is in? It's in Jesus. That he loves me. That he accepts me. And all because he decided that he wanted to be with me. So he shed his blood at Calvary by the will of the Father. And so today, though all may hate me, which is probably not true. Though my bank account is not where I want it. The law is not where I want it. My car is not where I want it. Whatever, you know. But the Lord is in the glory. And he's okay. And he says, I'm going to be okay. I don't want to be repetitive, but I love in Luke where Jesus, I think I even said this a few weeks ago, forgive me for that, but it's such a comfort to me personally. Jesus says, let me tell you how the last days are going to be. Your sons and your daughters are going to turn you in. They're going to hate you. Some of you will have marital issues and they'll hate you. Everybody will hate you for my name's sake. And they're going to torture you. And they're going to imprison you. And they're going to kill you. He says, but take heart because not a hair on your head will perish. And you're like, I feel like being killed would perish my hair. (laughs) Like all of it. I mean, I know it's great, but like, you know, I feel like all of it would perish. But Christ perspective, which seems like an important one. Christ's perspective is you can be tortured and killed, but you cannot be harmed. You can drown to a fault, but you cannot be harmed. And so when we say rejoice in the Lord, the idea is not just, just change, just change, just stop being sad. (laughs) It's the idea of taking captive and going, no, this is who Jesus is. It's about taking sides against myself and not letting my emotions and my will, right, my pneuma, my spirit, to be guided by my sinful or old nature. That's what it is to rejoice in the Lord. Something very different than just trying to skip into church and pretend everything's okay, because it's not okay. He goes on from there in in chapter 4, and then he says, don't be anxious. But it doesn't stop there. We, we love it. Be anxious for nothing. God bless you guys. I'll be here all week, right? That's, no, that's a joke. That's ridiculous. He tells us exactly how to do it in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. So he says, you should go to God and you should pray. You should tell him about it. And then you should petition. You should say, could it not be this way, please? Or could it be this way, please? And then he says, you should say, we should say, I should say, Thank you, because whatever happens, your will be done. And I know that someday you'll judge ultimately with equity. You'll have just the right judgment at just the right time. 
for every single event and person on this planet. So it's not just we're just not anxious. It's that we're considering these things and we're giving them back to the Lord. So in, in this example, in, 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 uh, back here in 2 Corinthians, Paul evaluates. And he doesn't give us, we don't, we don't know how it went down. We just know that he's there with an open door. The gospel's going forward. Evidently, people are getting saved. There's a church that he shows back up to when he goes back through Troas on his way back from Macedonia. So evidently, God's still working and doing these things. But he decides, you know what? I need to go find Titus. That's what I need to do today. And there's no condemnation for that. There's nothing wrong with that. So in your life, in your ministry, if there's some Titus lurking in the back of your mind somewhere, pray it through. It may be that you need to leave Troas behind. You may come back someday, but you may need to leave Troas behind so you can go find out where Troas is, or excuse me, where Tim, uh, Titus is, because you just don't have the peace yet. Evaluate, pray it through, and don't be afraid to act. You know what the cool thing is when we do stuff wrong in earnest? There's, there's two things. One, God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? So you have Romans 8. And not only that, but Philippians 3, Paul says that for those who have, of us who are mature, we should continue in what we know. And if we are in anything otherwise minded, God will show us even that. So we can move forward in faith, leaving Troas behind if that's what needs to happen, seeking out Titus. And we can know if we're not supposed to seek Titus, it's not condemnation from God. He'll let us know what we should do. He's obligated himself. He's promised that. So we get this life of peace where we go, you know what? I'm not worried about I'm going to step out of line and Jesus is going to be like, oh, what are you doing caring about someone else? Right? But that he instead can say, you know what? That's not what I, you know, Titus is a good thing, but I got Titus squared away. I'd like you to go back to Troas. And he can even use that for good. It's incredible what he's able to use for good. You know, let's look, in case you want that, let me look that up for you real quick here. In Philippians chapter 3, I didn't write it down. I was looking at Philippians chapter 2. I was like, I'm really about to look bad here. But uh, <laughs> No, that's a good one, though. It's so on. He says, uh, okay, is this it? Yeah, it's 3.15. All of us, then, who are mature should take such a view of things. And he's talking about what he just said, which is maturity and whatnot. He says, and if on some point you think differently, that too will God make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. So he's saying, hey, live according to the faith that you have. And if, you, if you're minded that, that you should be doing something else or something should be different and you're wrong, then God will reveal that to you. He's a loving father. He's not like a, a trash, drunk dad, right? He's a loving father. Back here in chapter uh, 2 and verse 14, we have a second portion here. He says there, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, 
we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, we, excuse me, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. So in the second portion, he, there's a link here, right? He's talking about leaving and being led by God. So he says, thanks be to God who always leads us, in verse 14, as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now this is interesting because the NIV, which I'm reading from right now, translate it, translates this, that uh, he leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal pr- pr- uh, procession. So in the pretty much every other English translation, it leaves the captives portion out. Because that sounds weird, right? He leads us as captives. You're like, I, okay. So I'm a slave, but I'm triumphal. How does that work? Here's hopefully an explanation. The triumphal procession is called, it's called a Roman triumph. And that's the reference, it's the word that he uses. It's like thereseu, so take that home with you. But in Greek, and what he's saying is, it's, a, it's actually a, like a thing. It literally means um, him, uh, triumphant him to, I can't pronounce the, uh, Hakachus, which would be Diosthenes, the god of wine. You're like, well, now you've really made it clear. Basically, what Paul is describing is a Roman triumph. So a Roman triumph was given to Roman generals like Marcus Aurelius, for example. He was a man who got a Roman triumph. So a Roman triumph is the processional or the parade that would occur in Rome when a general, a Roman general, had a huge victory. So to have a Roman triumph uh, uh, or a processional like that in your honor, if you're like Marcus Aurelius, you had to slay, your army had to kill more than 5,000 enemy soldiers. It had to gain land, gain territory for Rome, that particular battle. And it had to be a decisive victory. Meaning, like, you didn't lose 10,000 to kill 5,000. Does that make sense? So essentially, it took very good leadership to dominate an opposing army. If you did that, then you would have this processional. And so there would be in the front, and think of it almost literally as being like Caesar for a day. So you would get, as the general, you would be in this kind of super large, decorative, gold plated chariot. And it was pulled by four horses, and you can actually see. Um, those celebrations are still on some of the arches and so forth uh, in some of the Roman um, uh, uh, statues and whatnot. So you can still see, you can see a procession, what it looked like carved into stone to this day. So you would be there as the general on this, leading the way on this chariot, this golden chariot. Uh, you got to wear red shoes, so cool, I guess. Uh, you wear a specific toga uh, that was purple and had literal gold weaved into it. And uh, you wore a laurel crown. And your sons got to be with you. And so you would lead this processional. And then behind you would be your uh, officers that were there for the battle. And then behind them would be unarmed Roman soldiers. Because Roman soldiers at that time, uh, the uh, Hades Corpus, you couldn't couldn't have uh, soldiers armed against Rome. Like we used to have, but now don't. But that's, I guess, another day. The... uh, so they, they wouldn't be armed. They couldn't be armed marching into Rome. And then behind them, you would have captives, enemy soldiers, women, children, whoever they took from this land. And then behind them, you'd have more soldiers. So you'd have this huge triumphal procession that would be going into Rome. And at the end of the procession, this, the, the captives would be forced uh, in the Colosseum once it was built, but before the Colosseum, there were other locations, would be forced to fight wild animals, basically. 
and it was for sports. So it's a very kind of a yucky thing, essentially. And it was, it was designed to, and it, it progressed. As Rome got bigger and stronger, the processions got bigger and more, more pompous, if that makes sense. So that's the word that Paul is using here. So I, the, the, the idea, whether you want to use the NIV's English translation or you want to use the ESV or the 1901 or the, the NASB or whatever you want to use, the, all, the idea is that Christ is that general, that he is victorious and he's leading in triumph and victory, right? So that's, for us, it doesn't necessarily have the weight because we've never seen a Roman triumph. I would imagine if you're like Joe Pleb and you're sitting there and you're watching this, it would have been absolutely incredible. And so he's trying to communicate a word picture to the Corinthians, which would have obviously been a Roman, established by the Greek, but a Roman city. So I was pretty curious because I'm like, I don't understand the captive part. Now, now Paul does uh, refer to himself as a doulos multiple times, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. In Philemon 23, he calls himself a fellow captive with someone else. Another, another brother, who's, but they're actually in prison. So the, the question is, so uh, I just decided to email Craig Blomberg, that dude who has the books out there. He came here and spoke. So I was like, he's, he's on the board that translates the NIV. So I was like, hey, Craig. We actually call him Craigie B, just for fun. But <laughs> see, uh, I was like, hey, what, why did you guys translate it that way? <laughs> if you can just, you know. I have no reason to have the authority to ask you, but I'm just curious, you know, why did you guys translate it that way? And he said the reason that they use it, that Christ leads us as captives, is a reference to the fact that Paul multiple times calls himself a captive and calls himself a, um, a, uh, a servant or a bond slave of Christ. And so what they're trying to do in the, in the NIV is capture the idea that we are the captive, captives of Christ in a good way, that his triumph led to our salvation and how he leads us in triumph. If you're like, I didn't really care, sorry. But that's, that's why the NIV says it that way, that's way and uh, that's why you're, if you have a different translation, it doesn't say it that way. But either way, the whole point of it is that we're, we're led by Christ in triumph because of Calvary. So then in our being led of Christ, just as Paul was led by a lack of peace in his spirit, and I would venture to guess it's inference, but I think he probably considered it, prayed about it. That seems to be his MO in other times. He is led away from Chiras, this open door, but he makes the point that no matter where we go, led by Christ, we're the aroma of life, that we shed an aroma. And he says that we're an aroma of life to those who are being saved, Right, so who's that? Those would be believers, right? People that got saved, right? Because past tense, we, we got saved, right? But now we're being sanctified by Christ. Stuff's being, being set aside. He's working in our hearts. We're making decisions every day to either be more like Him or less like Him. When those things come into our, our mind or into, you know, we're presented with options. And so we are to people that are being saved, people who are choosing Jesus. And I would add in, and you can dispute this, and I wouldn't fight about it. I think it, being saved doesn't include this group of people, but I also think in, in, the, on a, in the same context, people that are looking for Christ. Does that make sense? So there are people that are searching. There are people that the, the Spirit is drawing. And so we will be an aroma of life to those two sets of people. 
But he says to the people that are perishing, and that, that is active tense, the, people, the present active, people that are currently in this very moment perishing, in other words, they are choosing to not receive Christ, he says to those people, we're the aroma of death to them. So here's the thing, a couple things about that. Number one, that is obviously rock-solid truth. Number two, we can give it some wiggle room because you and I can be, be the stench of death because we're acting like death, right? And just because we're saved doesn't mean we smell good. We have, to, <laughs> we have to be careful how we act around people, right? Because if we act poorly, if we decide to act in the flesh or from our old nature, meaning we respond with pride or anger, we respond with, with um, belittlements, dishonor, we'll just stink, We'll just smell like death to people. But it won't be because we're being led in a triumphal you know, procession of Jesus. It's because we're acting in the flesh. The, whenever you see the word flesh in the Bible, it's sarka, dead flesh, rotten flesh, where we get our word sarcophagus, or sarcastic, interestingly enough. But anyway, so we, we have this, this duality in us, this possibilities in us, where we have to decide how we're going to smell, how we're going to, the aroma. The other thing that's cool about aroma is aroma is like a side thing, right? Nobody goes to cook food and says, I'm going to cook this steak because I just want my house to smell good. And then someone comes along to eat it, and you're like, no, what are you doing? That's like the sensi of my house, right? This is the steak sensi. It's to get rid of peppermint because I just take Tylenol. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I digress. So... <laughs> I'm not against essential oils. I just like to joke about it. But, the, uh, but so, so you, you don't cook something to have the aroma. The aroma is just the after effect, right? It's just this unintended reality that happens. And that's what it's supposed to be from our lives. If we're being led in a triumphal procession with Jesus, we're walking with Jesus, we're listening to Jesus, we're his captive, we're, you know, we're his bond slave, we're acting and walking in those ways, then we will just supernaturally, naturally smell like Jesus. But if we're not walking with him, if we're not making decisions to take our thoughts captive, to, to deal with anxiety, to deal with depression, to deal with these things, if we're not doing that, then we will not smell like Jesus. We'll smell like Sarka. We'll smell like the flesh, which is stinky, and we all know it. So I, I want to look at a couple ideas that Paul communicates about how we can talk to one another and how we can smell good to one another and to the outsider. If you don't mind, flip over to Colossians chapter 3. Again, this is the same exact thing. In Colossians 1 and 2, Paul has, has talked in great length about what Christ has done for us and the great things he has for us, and now this is the, the application portion again. He talks about in, in uh, the first few verses there, 1 through 4, about looking to Christ, having our eyes above, looking at his throne and where he's seated. He, in 5 through uh, 11, he's talking about putting to death uh, the, uh, the flesh. In other words, not giving room for our old nature to rise up and to put to death the, the fruits of the flesh, immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desires, greed, all these different things. And then in 12, he, he comes out with this. He says, verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
This is an interesting metaphor. Clothe yourself. Put it on. When you're about to walk out the door. He says, when you're about to go out the door, make sure this is what's on the outside. Make sure this is what you're wearing. This is, this is your identity. This is who you are. This is what the world sees. Put on these things. And, and first he says this. He says, put on uh, compassion. Compassion is looking at a person's difficulties with consideration of the, uh, essentially the grief that those difficulties must cause, right? It's pretty easy to look at somebody who's downtrodden and have problems and despise them. And, and, and unfortunately, there's probably many of us who have experienced or even done it where someone has some sort of issue in their life and we've looked at them and we said, well, you, you earned this. Look what your life was like. Look what you do. No, it's no wonder that you have that going on in your life. You made all these decisions that got you there. All right? That's probably all true. But it's not compassionate. And it's most likely not going to help. So that when we go out the door, what people should see is a compassion from us. Not endorsement. There's a big difference, right? Endorsement says, I see what you've done, and it's good. Right? I endorse this. You should do that again. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about compassion that says, I see what's happened, and I see what you've done, but there's hope for you. That's what compassion is. Then he says kindness. Kindness is the same idea. It's, it's being gracious. It's, a, it's just a little bit different, I don't know, side idea. That we're kind to people. The words we use are kind. We're not, uh, we don't use words that are sarcastic in a, in a wrong, I get sarcastic humor. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize that. But, but a lot of times we weaponize sarcasm, and it's not in humor. We pretend like it's in humor, but we're actually just assaulting someone verbally because we're pretty ticked off about what's going on. Or we, or we get, um, we, can, we can be defensive or we can be uh, passive aggressive. Oh, really? You didn't know that would happen? Right? Where we, 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 we're trying to exercise our emotional disapproval but not look like we're exercising emotional disapproval, right? And that's, that's not healthy. Do we like sarcasm? Do we like it when people are passive-aggressive to us? Does it cause us to respond and say, I'd like to tell you my life story because I think you can help me? No, it makes us go, oh, really? Pound sand. I'm out, right? That's what it does. So he says, no, we ought to be compassionate. We ought to be kind. He says there, humility. I love... I'm a big Lewis fan, C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis. I begged my wife if we had a son to name him Clive Staples. We never had a son, so I don't know how that ended. But the, uh, <laughs> I would have secretly called him Clive Staples, I think, how it ended. But Clive, Clive Staples Lewis, he says this. He says, humility is not self-degradation. In other words, humility is not to be like, I'm stupid, I'm no good, I'm trash. That's not humility. Humility is, is not to consider yourself. In other words, humility is that when I'm dealing with or I'm interacting with or I'm being part of something or someone else or even in my own thought life, I don't consider me. So someone can tell me, you're trash, and I can say, hey, God bless you because I'm not considering myself and my identity is in Christ. If someone comes up and says, you're the best, you can say, hey, God bless you because I'm not considering myself. It's not about me. When I'm in a situation that's, that is, has drama or that has uh, discomfort or, or conflict or something like that, I don't have to consider me. 
I don't have to give, give thought, process, and power and time to how I feel about it, unless, it's, unless that has something to do with it, which oftentimes it doesn't. I just need to discuss and, and say, what's going on? How can I help you? Why do you feel that way? How did this happen? You know, so, so he says, we're humble with people. We don't want to insert our opinions and our emotions into other people's travails. It is the worst thing we can do. We will not help people if we do that. We're there to give people the truth and love and in kindness and compassion, to tell people there's hope for you. You need to repent. You need to turn from that. You need to turn to Christ for that. But he loves you and I love you, and I'm here to help you do that. That's what we do, right? Not, I'm disappointed in you. Yeah, they're disappointed in themselves. That's why they're talking to you, right? If someone's coming to you with difficulties in their life, think how much courage that took, how much self-abasement that took to come and say, I'm addicted to porn. I'm addicted to meth. I'm addicted to whatever, Netflix. I'm addicted, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a, I love myself. How many of us introduce ourselves like that? My name is James, and I love myself. How are you doing? You know how I love myself? Look at my belly. Look at my house. I love myself. I love myself. I want to take care of myself. No, instead we're like, praise the Lord, brother. I'm good. You know, it's just, if someone is talking to you about their faults, our disapproval is worth nothing. It's only, gonna, it's only going to minimize the effect of our counsel. From there, he says this. <clears throat> we're to be gentle. Dude, gentleness is gone in our society. To be gentle. You know, there's so many times where we can be in a situation where we're right. And there's wrong ones too, but we're right. And when we're right, that's especially when we want to be gentle. This country, and, and maybe globally, I couldn't say, is harsh. And we're told in the last days, what are the major signs? People will be merciless. And you know what's unfortunate? The church goes the same way oftentimes as the society. And I just encourage you, what does your social media look like? Is it gentle? Is it humble? Is it merciful? Is it gracious? Is it kind? Is that what our posts like? What are our texts like? Are our texts gentle? Are they kind? Or are they full with emotion and rage and, and, and just condemnation? What are they like? Because if we're the aroma of Christ, I would encourage you, and this isn't like some just jerk pastoral move to be like, ha ha, I would literally encourage you, go back through the scriptures through the Gospels, just read the words in red if you're short on time. Read the words in red and find one place where Jesus just unloads on a hooker or a tax collector or an alcoholic. Just unloads and says, I can't believe you. You're disgusting. Your, your choices brought you to this. This is your fault. I can't. You won't find it. It's not in the words in red or the words in black for that matter. I'm not excusing those behaviors or endorsing them. Where will you find the most harsh things that Jesus ever said? Religious leaders. He said things like, you guys are whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look real good. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. It's pretty wild. 
I'm not saying, again, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that we compromise on truth. I'm not saying that we think sin is great or useful. I'm saying is there's a way to deal with it that's prescribed by the Bible, and it's gracious and kind and gentle. And you can bring up what ifs. Well, what if there's a guy and he comes into the gathering and Sunday morning he just starts screaming that Jesus sucks? Well, then we'll gently, graciously tackle him and take him outside. I mean, <laughs> I'm not saying that there's not a time to take action, all right? What I'm saying is that for you and I, in our, in our spheres, as broken people trying to help broken people, we have a God-given prescription on how to do it. And it's not with rage. It's not with anger. It's not with offense. It's not with any of those things. It's with love and kindness. Last idea in chapter 4. So that was how to deal with God's people. He says in chapter 4, and in verse 5, this is for, for outsiders. He says, be wise in the ways, the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. And let your conversation be always full of grace, charis, grace. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. So working backwards, he says, do you want to know how to answer everyone? Do you want to know how to talk to every single unbeliever that's on the planet? Because this is how you do it. First and foremost, you use wisdom. I like this. Because, and I'm not trying to minimize this. We can, we can oh, wow, how to say this without being offensive. We can be so mystical sometimes and be like, I need the Spirit to tell me what to say. I'm waiting on the Spirit. I'm all about waiting on the Spirit. I'm all about the Spirit leading us. The Scripture is all about those things, 100%. But we have entire sections of Scripture called the wisdom literature. And what wisdom is, it's great because it's things you don't ever have to pray about. You don't even have to seek the Spirit about it, of God, because it's wisdom. It's the proper application of knowledge. Let me demonstrate this for you. You're, say, walking down the street, and you see, I don't know, an abortion clinic. And you think to yourself, I really wish people weren't killing babies. It's a valid thought, right? I mean, these are good thoughts, valid thoughts. And you see some young lady go in there. You now have options, right? You can run up to her on the street, as the church in general has before, and has a sign that says, you dirty whore, right? And you can tell her that she's terrible and that she's sinned against God and now she's going to sin again and that he'll judge her someday. And you can tell her all those things, right? Using wisdom, what will be the outcome, most likely, of that conversation? She says, dude, who is your Jesus? I want to get saved. <laughs> Probably not, Right? Probably not going to be the outcome. Is she going to go, oh, gosh, I'm going to be judged someday? Shoot. I don't want any part of this. Probably not, right? Because everything that the media has told her about Christians, we've just proved to be true. But here it says that we're to be gracious, full of grace. That means unmerited favor for that person. Looking upon that person is like, you're my favorite. Favor. I favor you. How do you treat your favorite person? Probably not like that. Instead, we might walk up and say, are you okay? Right? We don't have to be like, are you getting an abortion? Just go, are you okay? And you, it might open a door. Someone says, no, I'm not okay. 
I'm going to get an abortion. And we can go, oh, here's this tract. All right? Or we can go, oh, why? And I'll tell you, you know, I got to minister for a couple, I think it was two or three years at a, at a and clean, which was a, a um, treatment center for drug and alcohol. And I had a lot of talks with young women about abortions. And every single talk that I had with young women is because they'd, they'd had one. And, and they were ashamed of it. Believers and unbelievers. See, one of the statistics that, that a lot of these places won't share is that 70 to 80% of women, 20 to 30 years later, still feel regret and shame and guilt over the decision to get an abortion. And so if we want to come along, we can add to that. Or we can give them the gospel and say, and they say, well, you know what? My boyfriend got me pregnant, and I don't know what to do. We don't have money. We don't have this. We don't have that. And we can come along and say, oh, you know what? I don't have all the answers, but I know that most women that get abortions, it kills them inside. So if you could wait a couple days, I'd love to help you. And I'd like to introduce you to ways that, that you can find real joy and, and, and maybe have not have to take that step, right? Our politics don't have to enter into it. Our disdain doesn't have to enter into it. We're not holier than them. There go we, save for the grace of God. And all of a sudden, what does wisdom tell you that that conversation may go? Way more likely that person says, okay, what, what do I do? Where do I go? And we say, I don't know, but let's, let's, let's call someone. <laughs> I think there's a resource center in Astoria. I think there's a resource center. Let's, let's call someone. You know, I, or, you know, hey, let, let me, if you're a dude, say, let me get you in touch with my wife or my sister or somebody, you know. They can help you with that. So all of a sudden, we've exercised some wisdom. We didn't condone it. We didn't go, this is, you know what, hey, I understand. Things are tough. Go ahead and do it. We didn't condone it. We didn't condemn it. We just exercise grace and we exercise wisdom. So if we want to be people that are influencing our community for good, it's not going to come through rage and outrage and offense. We're told straight up that we're going to be there to be act wisely, make the most of opportunities, right? So we don't count anybody out. We let our conversation be full of grace, season with salt. That doesn't mean salt their wounds. It means to make the, that our words are palatable, Edible, right? That's the idea, when, that our, our speech is seasoned with salt. And then he says, it says that, and that's how we should answer everyone. So I'll tell you, you know, Paul, in the end there, he says, we're not peddling the word of God as some are. That's the last verse there. We're not peddling the word of God. And, and the, the, there's a duality to that point. On the one hand, people were doing that, and they still are today, where they use the word to try to make money. So he says, that's not what we're doing. He says, we're doing it with sincerity, Sincerity is when you genuinely desire the best for someone else. That's what being sincere is. You mean what you say, and you say what you mean. We don't want to be peddlers of God's word. We don't want to try to use God's word to get some sort of satisfaction for ourselves, justice or otherwise, or justification. We want to be those that are ministering the word with sincerity, saying, you know what? God wants the best for you, regardless of what you've done. And, and by the power of his spirit and with a tinge of wisdom on the side, you and I can have incredible experiences and opportunity for the sake of God's kingdom. 
And that's what we're called to do, right? We're here to build his kingdom, not anybody else's. We're here to build his kingdom. And he has great things for us. So let's pray and uh, we'll be on our way. Huh? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great cloud of witnesses of folks that went before us and that are cheering us along. They can tell us how faithful you are. Thank you for our brother Paul and your faithfulness to him. Thank you that we're able to see his concerns and his uh, emotions. And Lord, how you worked through those to do great things. We want to be people that are wholly yours, people that are yielded to you, and people that are effective for your kingdom. I pray that you would lead us. If there's some Titus out there that we need to see to and leave behind Troas, I pray you'd lead us with that, about that. But Lord, that we would be individuals uh, yielded to your will, full of your Holy Spirit, and humble before you and our brethren and unbelievers. You're very kind, and we appreciate it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.